0: Hi, everybody, Liam here. Before we get started with today's story, I just want to tell you about a podcast called Revolutionary Care, an Oakland story. It's a six-episode series about the evolution of healthcare over the past few decades, and specifically, it deals with sickle cell anemia, an illness that primarily affects African Americans. This show covers everything from the history of the Black Panther Party setting up community clinics right here in Oakland, to the latest breakthroughs in gene therapy. But uh, here's the thing. Even if you don't have sickle cell or know anyone who does, it's still such a fascinating lens to examine health care and struggles to provide equitable treatment. And best of all, revolutionary care includes the voices of people who are most affected by this. So it's just like a really powerful story to listen to. And I think if you dig my podcast, you'll like... This show as well, Revolutionary Care, An Oakland Story, was created by UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals, and you can find it anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, I'll also drop a link in the show notes. Big thank you to UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals for supporting this episode of East Bay Yesterday. Okay, moving right along. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live in front of a great audience at the cameron stanford house on may 18th 2023 the topic of the event was a brand new book called bay curious exploring the hidden true stories of the san francisco bay area and the guest was the author of that book kqed's olivia allen price what's the cameron stanford house what's to do with this book Stay tuned, because you're about to find out the answers to all those questions and so much more. All I'll say for now is that if you want to find out about more upcoming East Bay Yesterday events, sign up for my newsletter. It's free. Follow me on social. You can find the links to all that good stuff at eastbayyesterday.com. And as always, huge thanks, gigantic thanks to the Patreon donors for supporting this program. Okay, on with the show. All right, thank you so much, everyone, for coming here and joining us tonight at the beautiful Cameron Stanford House on the shores of Lake Merritt. I'm Liam O'Donohue from East Bay Yesterday here with Olivia Allen Price from KQED's Bay Curious. And before we start with our conversation, um, I was wondering, uh, Ileana, Ileana Martin, the director of the Cameron Stanford House, I was wondering if you would come up and say a couple quick words about the location that we're recording this episode right now.
1: Yeah, so welcome, everyone. I'm really excited to have Olivia and Liam here with us today. Um, Myself and our staff are great fans of both of your shows, so thank you for um, being here tonight. And thank all of you. Um, Just a show of hands, how many of you are here for the very first time? Okay, so almost everyone. Amazing. (laughs) Welcome. But that's great because I like to tell people that the Cameron Stanford House is one of the best-kept secrets in Oakland. Um, Not a lot of people know, but the house has been here for... A long time it's the last victorian in the area still standing that was a former um, single-family residence. so the house was built in 1876 so it, it's it's old for california standards for for this area um, but it has been a public museum since 1901 so this site actually used to be the home of the oakland public museum before the oakland museum of california opened down that way in the the early 70s. So for a while, um, we had all kinds of stuff here. We had taxidermy, we had a giant polar bear. Um, I've been told there were dinosaur bones. I don't know that's totally sure, but um, I've heard that they were here. You know, all kinds of different things. But the house closed as a museum in the late 60s when the museum moved, and it was closed for a long time until the Preservation Society turned it into what you see today, which is this amazing historic house museum. Um, you're actually here on a really special day because we're celebrating the Cameron Stanford House's birthday. Um, they've been open as a historic house museum for 45 years this week. So it opened for the first public tour yesterday in 1978. So um, happy birthday Cameron Stanford House and I'm really glad that you're all celebrating here with us today and celebrating a new book too. So. Um, I know a lot of you had a chance to explore the rooms a little bit you probably talked to bobby one of our amazing uh, volunteers but if you have any questions about the house feel free to to visit and come back and see us we have an an art exhibit open right now it's a community art show called oakland the beautiful and all the pieces you see were created by local artists Um, we have a new exhibit opening in july called the Victorians Faces of 19th, 19th Century Oakland, which looks at the experiences and people who lived in the area and made Oakland Oaklands in its early days. So come back and see us, and thank you.
0: So I have been listening to Bay Curious, I think since pretty much the very beginning. Wow. You know, been been there since day one, more or less. And so when I heard that you were coming out with this book, I was so excited. Um, But one of the things that kind of surprised me when I actually sat down to read the book a couple weeks ago is that one of my favorite parts in the book is the intro, where you talk about kind of your origin story, uh, specifically coming to the bay in 2013, flying here from Baltimore to work at KQED and how in your first couple days and weeks living in the Bay, you really learned about this place by just kind of wandering around and walking and just kind of soaking it all in. And that really resonated with me because I kind of did the exact same thing about 10 years before that. I moved here in 2003, uh, didn't know anyone, didn't have a job and just spent days and days just wandering this place. And I think there's something really special about seeing a place with fresh eyes that does spark a lot of wonder and curiosity and I'm just so glad that we were both able to find Outlets for yeah. <laughs> for that curiosity that we're going to be talking about here tonight. So um, I think probably everyone in this room uh, ha- is familiar with Bay Curious uh, because this event sold out in less than a day. So um, I think there's probably some super fans here. But uh, for anyone listening at home, we're recording this episode for, for the East Bay Yesterday podcast. For anyone listening at home, Bay Curious has been running for about eight years now, since 2015, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. And you guys cover everything from the history of oysters and redwoods to... Sideshows, uh, the origins of words like Hella. Uh, it's quite an expansive project. Uh, full disclosure, I did contribute one uh, chapter to this book. Uh, I'm not going to talk about which one. You're going to have to get the book to find out. No spoilers here. We're
2: not going to talk about that story tonight. <laughs> we, we can get to okay. that
0: maybe in the Q&A. <laughs> well, that'll keep people listening. A little cliffhanger. Um, but, uh, Olivia, I just wanted to say that since you moved here in 2003, summer of 2003, and we're coming up on summer of 2023, uh, now, congratulations on 10 years in the Bay. Thank
2: you. 13. 2013. You said three. Oh,
0: 2013. That's your year. Yes, that's my year. So, but you're coming up on your year.
2: On 10, yes. You're coming up. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That's
0: going to be tough to edit for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Um, all right. So... Speaking of your your origin, coming to the Bay, you started Bay Curious not long after moving here, about two years after moving to the Bay. And I'm just wondering if you ever felt intimidated at all about kind of being in this role of an educator, educating people about this place. Some people who have been here for generations about this place that you were just getting to know yourself.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think coming in as an outsider and and you know uh, getting an opportunity to start a show that's all about learning about the Bay Area, I definitely had imposter syndrome. Am I the right person to do this? Uh, I still probably deal with that a little bit, 10 years into it, <laughs> about. Um, but I think there is something about, like you said, coming here as an outsider with fresh eyes. Um, I grew up in North Carolina, and our history classes kind of focused on like the 1700s east coast history like as far as the west coast was concerned it was like and then the L- louisiana purchase happened and that's the end like <laughs> um so i coming out here i i was very humbled in like how little i knew which i think has really helped because i go into pretty much every reporting scenario and situation um Knowing very little, and so getting to like ask those you know questions that might seem dumb, or somebody who's been here for a long time might not think to ask, uh, because you know it's sort of you know acquired knowledge or, or knowledge that they maybe learned in school, but when you ask them afresh now, uh, because history you know it's it's not aesthetic thing. I do think we're kind of always revising a little bit how we view history and um, the number of voices that are included in stories. Like, I can talk a lot about how history is becoming, you know, more inclusive and still has a long way to go. And when I say history, historians and how we tell history. Um, but but yeah, I think there was something about being an outsider uh, that maybe helped, especially in, in the early years, to... You know, just come come at stories with pretty fresh perspective.
0: Absolutely, I think that's one of the reasons why the show works so well is because you are on the journey of the, learning this knowledge along with the listeners. You're not just you know lecturing them things that that you already know.
2: One thing I will add, though, like my favorite thing is when people who say they've lived in the Bay Area a long time will tell me that they're a fan of the show and that they've learned something that they thought they knew. What they learned, you know, something a little bit different about it. Um, that's like. A lot of our audience actually is like longtime yeah. Bay Area folks uh, which really makes me just feel awesome <laughs> and like we really think intentionally about our show and designing it so that if you're relatively new here you moved here six months ago we kind of give you an on-ramp so you're able to kind of join us on the journey um, but if you've been here for you know decades and decades we're not um, making it so basic or spending so much time going through those elementary steps that you're kind of like okay this isn't for me and you, you tune out so we're really trying to walk a fine line. So that's, yeah, yeah, really intentional.
0: So there's something that happens to me, like almost every time I'm out at a, you know, a party or a gathering when I tell people what I do when their eyes light up and they're like, Oh my gosh you cover local history, let me tell you this story. Like, this crazy thing happened to my grandpa. Like, is this thing really true or not? And I'm wondering if that happens to you, too. Like, you're out, and people are like, what do you do? And you explain that you're the host of a show about answering people's questions about the Bay Area. You get a lot of questions from people that you just kind of have meant them to, you know, meet. At, at gatherings like that?
2: I do. I get a lot of questions. Uh, I usually will... I'll actually have a little notepad on my on my phone where I'm kind of like writing them down. It's always a joy if I happen to know the answer because a lot of times I do. Like, we've done 350-some episodes wow. now at this point. So we have covered a lot of territory. So it's always delightful when I can be like, actually, I do know the answer to that friend. But, uh, but yeah, we also get a lot of... Or, you know, I'm asked a lot of questions that I... You know, there's... We could spend another hundred years producing Bay Curious and still have so much to discover here. It's just such a rich area, and there's so many, you know, just great questions that we've been asked, and we're kind of just sitting on waiting to produce.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I feel like there's no shortage of, of questions to answer out there. Um, it's all, it is always funny when you're having those conversations, though, when people are, like, telling me stories, and you're like, actually, I think I might need to fact check that. Like, um, I remember those like, I, so I do these boat tours, um, that I talked about on the show a lot and people always bring stories to me on my boat tours and one of the cool things about my tour is we go out to treasure islands. So you can like look back and see the East Bay Hills. And one, one time this guy was like pointing at the Claremont hotel and he's like, and it's very clear. You can see the Claremont hotel very clearly from even all the way out in the bakes, it's like a big white building and it's got a lot of green trees behind it. So it really stands out. And this guy was like, do you know why they painted it white? And I was like, no, actually, I don't. He's like, because when the Golden Gate International Exposition was being held on Treasure Island in 1939, 1940, the owner of the hotel wanted people to be able to see it, And, like, point to people and be like, I'm staying there. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. But then I found pictures of the Claremont Hotel that was was painted white back in 1915. 15 years before the World's Fair. So I'm like, "Uh, maybe. I don't know. I don't know if that story is (laughs) 100% checks out.
2: There's definitely, like, an alternative podcast to ours that I feel like is, like, Perpetuated myths. That's like the more the, yes. the more fun version of what we do, where we can just like make whatever up. You know? Yeah, like Bay, the,
0: Bay the, Fiction, or even like the Bay Curious like conspiracies edition, because there are definitely a lot of conspiracies out there, as well. Um, and they're you know, I mean, as conspiracies go, some of them are kind of lighthearted and funny. Others not so much. Like one of the things that you cover in this book is the Port Chicago disaster, um, which you know is this horrible explosion. They killed um, hundreds of sailors, majority black, uh, military members, and a couple people have actually kind of pulled me aside and been like, oh, do you know that that was actually, like, an atomic bomb that, like, accidentally went off, and the government covered it up. And I've had to be like, yeah, I don't think that's true, because there'd be, like, radioactivity and, like, all kinds of evidence. And they're like, no, you just, you know, like, so you got to kind of, like, t- ask people to gently take off the tinfoil hat sometimes <laughs> when they're... But nobody here. Stories. Nobody here. <laughs> yeah. You
2: guys all seem cool.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well, speaking of myth busting, um, you do you do some mis- myth busting in this book. Uh, the the Mount Diablo myth is yeah. definitely one that I kind of can't believe was so popular for so long. Do you want to explain that? Actually? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I,
2: I love this story. Uh, so, who's been to the top of Mount Diablo? <laughs> A lot of you. Yeah. Beautiful, amazing, expansive view, right? Um, So in the early part of the 1900s, it was widely said that that was the largest view on planet Earth, that you could see more land and water from that vantage point than anywhere else. Which, if you really stop and think about it, <laughs> given the relatively low prominence of Mount Diablo, uh, is, is pretty far-fetched. And finally, I think it was like in the 60s or 70s, a mathematician sat down, did the math on what's called a viewshed. That's what that is, like how, how, how large of a view you can see. And... You know, Mounty, it's it's still an impressive viewshed, view but it, i don't know if that cracks the top hundred or something in the world. Right, I'm
0: like, do the person who started that myth like had they never seen the Sierras or the Rockies or the Himalayas or the well, Alps? Well, or- I will say what
2: what helps its case is. <laughs> yeah. It's an isolated peak, right? right? right. Whereas in the Sierra, you know, a lot of times there's another tall mountain just a short distance away, which would reduce how far you see. But, um, yeah, there's still many more isolated peaks uh, on um, on planet Earth.
0: As with many myths, this was, like, propagated for a specific purpose, right? It was, like, basically a real estate... Uh, yes. Kind of uh, gimmick to yeah. like get people interested in buying property. In A
2: area. developer was hoping yeah. to develop one side of Mount Diablo, so this myth was was part <laughs> of luring people to be interested in in the property there. Uh, that fell through ultimately. Like that land did not get developed. But this myth stayed on and actually people will, I mean, people asked this question of us only a couple of years ago because they had still heard it today. So it's still Still circulating. It's hard to
0: dislodge those myths. Yeah, once they kind of make the round, they really get stuck in people's. And it's so
2: juicy and it seems like a point of pride and you get up there and it is a beautiful, amazing view. You can see you know, Half Dome on really clear days, which is pretty cool. Um, But yeah, the largest in the world. Actually, there's one little twist to the story, which is kind of funny. Um, At some point, I think it was, Somebody who was like writing the brochure for the real estate developer was like, you know, largest in the world doesn't quite sound right. So they said it was second largest, <laughs> only behind Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah. So I like yeah. that the person was like trying to yeah. a little bit cover this this you know exaggeration with.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just as a quick side note, I will uh, give a shout out to uh, Save Mount Diablo and all the groups that have um, challenged some of the developments that were slated to occur there because I was actually up on Monte just yesterday um, admiring the just bounty of wildflowers up on the eastern side of the mountain right now and it's absolutely spectacular. So definitely a local gem even though it doesn't have the true claim to fame of being the greatest view on the planet. Still
2: Maybe the greatest view in the San Francisco Bay Area. Sure yeah it's
0: got to be up there, there yeah. there's a lot of competition <laughs> though. Um, any other myths from the book or from the show that you just love kind of you know, popping pop in the balloon on that myth?
2: Well, we just had one, actually, the last couple of days that got busted for us. Uh, and we haven't even put it on the show yet. I don't know if it will make it to the show. So this might be the only airing that we get of this myth-busting. Um, Exclusive I, content. And it's East Bay when I was like, okay, this hey. is this is good to talk about here. Um, so on UC Berkeley's campus, a lot of the administrative buildings and a lot of the lecture halls, apparently, I haven't spent a lot of time on this campus, but only have a door handle on one side. Mm. Have people heard a rumor about why? Do you want to share it?
1: During protests, people would chain the doors, and so they removed one of the handles,
0: so they couldn't. I'm just going to repeat that real quick since we're recording this. So uh, the the rumor was that people... Uh, or actually, can you just repeat yeah. it?
2: <laughs> so the rumor is that during uh, you know, like the 60s and 70s, when protests were happening much more often on campus, uh, people would sometimes chain the doors together, and administrators would get locked inside, and they were not able to leave these facilities. So this is apparently like a widely, um, widely said thing on, on campus. I w- was emailing with a couple people at Berkeley over the last couple of days, and they, they are adamant that it is not true. That is not true. Um, The the thinking or the belief was that at some point they actually removed the second door handle, which uh, maybe at some point there were two. Hmm. Now there's only one because of this, um, you know, desire to not make it so you could (laughs) tie these these doorknobs together. Unfortunately, they don't. They won't go on the record and tell me. So I'm like suspicious. I'm like, so you're telling me this is a myth, but you won't correct what seems to be the record right now, which says that this is the story.
0: Well, I know. Who are you speaking
2: to there? I'll tell you after we'll (laughs) We'll connect yeah yeah i I don't (laughs) want to throw anyone under a bus on a live recording (laughs)
0: yeah i I do know a couple radical historians who were who were you know who are very familiar with berkeley's radical history so maybe i can help point you in the right direction on that one yeah absolutely but it's it's like the perfect myth though because it kind of has the ring of truth and it's interesting and yeah kind of kind of a juicy story um I love it, like, when you hear a myth that sounds too crazy to be true, but then it actually does turn out to be accurate. Like, there's a story that I tell on my boat tours, and I have to, like, preface it by saying, like, I know this sounds crazy, but, like, look it up in the, you know, military records, because this, this checks out. Um, during World War Two when the um bay was heavily fortified like you even write in your in the book about how there was the net to block submarines from coming into the bay um that stretched across the golden gate uh so there was mines there was this net and there was also um blimps for a little while that would patrol outside the golden gate to have an aerial view so they would see if submarines hopefully were coming um into the golden gate and the um The invasion never happened, of course. There was no Japanese submarines that got that close. So apparently some of these Navy blimp pilots that got bored actually used whales for target practice and would drop bombs on whales that they would see coming in past the Golden Gate. Not a good story, but definitely a a crazy one (laughs) that I was was like, really? really? I wish that was a myth, yeah, exactly. Yeah. oh, exactly. bummer.
2: I mean, a couple other we have in the book which are kind of fun. Um, this is another one that's, like, really widely... Yeah, please change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> i gonna run away from that one. Yeah. <laughs> um... Um, that's kind of fun is uh this is also another one i hear all the time but that george lucas was inspired by the cranes at the port of oakland when he created the is it at at or at okay sorry yeah. i'm like not a star wars person um george lucas is on the record saying that is not true again one that people are like suspicious about i'm like, suspicious you sure? of that
0: one are you too sure? i have my own <laughs> theories it was a subliminal influence because be. he lived here he drove across the bay bridge all the time he saw those cranes i mean like came to him in a dream maybe and he's you know come on george Give, give Oakland some credit.
2: <laughs> Maybe, like, on his deathbed, he'll confess. Like, yeah. actually... <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm an at ATAT walker truther, I guess.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, also that there are dinosaur bones in the Campanile on UC Berkeley's campus, which there are fossils and bones, but not dinosaur bones actually in the Campanile. they are, like, uh, dire wolves and giant sloths and all sorts oh. of other yeah. uh, creatures from before modern times. Right. But um, according to Pat Holroyd... Who is the uh, paleontologist there? No dinosaur bones.
0: Yeah, I saw an interesting talk a couple of years ago by a paleontologist who basically whenever um, there's going to be a big like infrastructure project, like, I think the project that she was talking about in this discussion was um, they were like rebuilding um, like a reservoir, like a dam somewhere in the South Bay. And uh, like whatever agency it is, like the state agency, they basically have to give the paleontologist like a certain amount of time to dig for fossils before they can move forward with the project. So they're like racing against the clock. They've got like, you know, six months or a year to check everything out. And they found like megalodons, which are like giant prehistoric sharks and all kinds of interesting fossils. I believe when um Oakland Coliseum was being dug, they found yeah, similar to what you're talking about, like mastodon bones and bones of like prehistoric uh, giant mammals and other megafauna. So definitely fossils around here but yeah.
2: yeah dr Holroyd has this quote that I love and she's like anytime you're gonna big, dig a big hole in the bay Area you're gonna find fossils because they're just everywhere it was it's been a very diverse and rich place for a long time um, she actually we had a, a la- book launch event at kqED and she brought a bunch of these bones and casts of bones uh, to to our facility and she ha- brought this one that was probably like this this long and you know kind of like this big around like it's almost like an upper thigh for us.
0: For people at home, um, <laughs> yeah. Olivia is holding up her arms about as big as a super burrito. Wow.
2: Maybe a little bit oh, bigger. Much <laughs> bigger. Maybe a little bigger.
0: I don't know. There's a 16-inch super burrito that I think Sinaloa does. So that's
2: I would pretty say, super. I would say like maybe like An eight-month-old baby. Okay. So, like, two super burritos. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe two. But... uh, And it's actually just the upper arm bone, so from from elbow Uh to shoulder, of a giant sloth that would have once lived here. And just the idea that sloths can get that big just, like, breaks my brain. It's really cool. Yeah.
0: So cute to think about.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Cute, slow, giant animals.
0: (laughs) All right. So, moving from dinosaurs onto more recent history... One of the uh, kind of reoccurring themes, uh, cause you know, every week on your show you tackle a different question or a different topic. And one of the reoccurring themes is sort of about how, like the kind of origins of a lot of, you know, phenomena or inventions are kind of hard to pin down exactly like, who really came up with Hella first? Where did it come from? Or another local example is Rocky Road Ice Cream, which uh, several different inventors from Oakland, ice cream people, Claim credit for the dryers, people, the fentons, people, and you sort of untangle this history in the book. Another great example, the mai tai. Yes. Another
2: yeah. Another
0: local invention with a bit of a murky past. You wanna you wanna yes. talk about how you kind of approach those questions that sort of have different you know, versions of the story.
2: Should I tell the story of the Mai Tai first and then get into like how yeah, we think about it? Yeah, that sounds um, great. Because you, you, lo- you warned me that this one was coming up, and so I took a couple choice notes so I, I don't uh, forget a year or something. Um, so the Mai Tai... Uh, most likely has origins in Oakland. Uh, Victor Bergeron owned a bar called Hinky Dinks back in 1934, which I love that name, Hinky Dinks. Um, And he opened this bar with his wife and got really into just like bartending in general. And kind of his ambitions for bartending grew and grew, and he was getting kind of just more interested in you know creative things that people were doing all over the world. He goes on a trip to New Orleans. He goes to the Caribbean, he ends up going to this Havana bar called El Florita, I think I'm saying that right, um, which is a renowned cocktail bar um, in Havana, and he drinks what's called a Golden Glove, which is Jamaican rum, orange juice, orange curacao, lime juice, sugar, which is, if you have had or made a Mai tai before, you know it's pretty much everything except for the Orgeot, Orgeat syrup, Orgeat. I never, I always say Orgeot, but I think that's incorrect. I think it's Orjat. You edited this in post. <laughs> make me make me sound right. Orjat syrup. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so he returns from, <clears throat> from his travels and he starts putting ultimately what becomes the Mai Tai on, on his drink menu. The legend goes that he made it for a friend who was Tahitian. She tries it. She exclaims, "Mai Tai," which in Tahitian means awesome. Um, and that's how it got its name. He liked he liked the sound of that, and he put it on the menu. So that is one of the stories. The other story goes that he, Victor Bergeron, went down to L.A. to a place called Don the Beachcomber, which uh, is widely regarded as the first tiki bar in the U.S., another very famous place. And at Don the Beachcomber, they were notoriously secretive about their recipes. So Vic goes down. He is apparently kind of like grilling the bartenders, trying to get details about the drinks that right, he's like, drinking. because didn't they
0: have numbers on the bottles instead of labels? So numbers on could the even bottles, recipes, the would, was?
2: recipes would change. They mm. actually had a drink at one point called the Mai Tai Sizzle that was apparently gone by the time Vic got there. And the recipe has been lost to time because the, the owner of the time kept the recipes very close to his chest. So a lot of times his bartenders didn't even know mm. what was in the drinks that they were making. Anyway, so Vic comes back from that trip um, and is very inspired by what he saw at Don the Beachcomber and, you know, likes the idea of becoming more of a tiki bar. So he totally redoes the decor in his bar. He ditches the name Hinky Dinks, which I got to read the quote because I just find it very charming. Um, Let's see. In his autobiography, he writes... We decided Hinky Dinks was a junkie name and that the place should be named after someone we could tell a story about. My wife su- suggested Trader Vic's because I was always making a trade with someone. Fine. I became Trader Vic." <laughs> <laughs> um, I just love that. Um, so Hinky Dinks becomes Trader Vic's. Uh, they're selling the Mai Tai. Herb Kane, a renowned San Francisco columnist who really uh, a lot of people were following at the time, writes about it, calls it the best. Uh, You know, bar in San Francisco is actually in Oakland is what he writes. Um, And, you know, the rest is kind of history. But, But yeah, was he inspired by this trip to Havana? Was he inspired by this trip to L.A.? Were one of those other bartenders actually the originator of the recipe and he kind of stole it or made like one little tweak to it? It's all murky, and it's very common for all of these food stories. Actually, like I think almost every food story in our book is kind of like a this or that. Um, It's definitely hard
0: to keep the details straight after you've had one or two mai tais. (laughs) But another thing about Trader Vic is like you can't believe anything he says because like he used to tell people he had a wooden leg, and he used to tell people that he lost it due to a shark attack in the South Pacific, but. It was it was really because he had tuberculosis when he was like six years yeah. old. So he was definitely a tall tale teller, <laughs> a little bit of a yarn spinner. But we can definitely raise our raise our glass to him metaphorically because the mai tai is a delicious drink. Yes, and, uh, it's still still there, Trader Vicks, for anyone who wants to go check it out down at the Emeryville Marina. They're still slinging those Mai Tais, but I, it, it's such a funny story because I don't think anyone really associates the Mai Tai with the Bay Area in the popular imagination. It's like something you get in Hawaii, Hawaii. A tropical place. Another drink that's like that is the Martini, mm-hmm. which, you know, you think of, you know, James Bond or like maybe some suave, like chic New York, you know, cocktail lounge, but where was it? It was invented right
2: around here, right? Well, uh, hopefully, maybe. Maybe. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the rumor around that one or the the most widely held belief is that it was either invented in Martinez, thus the Martini, um, and that a, uh, a miner who had struck it gold, like, you know, struck it rich, had a bunch of gold, came down and and was in Martinez, kind of on his way back to the Bay Area, Plunks some gold down in front of the bartender and says, you know, make me something special. And he makes a martini. And it dubs it the martini because they're in Martinez. um, And that it's, it's a hit with him. He kind of brings it back to San Francisco. The other story about that one, it was, I think, at the Occidental Hotel in San Francisco, but similar story. Basically, gold miner comes back, has a nugget of gold. Bartender makes him this drink. Um, but yeah, that, that one really surprised me. And I will say my dad is an avid martini drinker, like one, probably two a day. <laughs> um, and when I told him the story, he was just like, I knew I loved the Bay Area. Like, uh,
0: <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Um, there's so many great legends that came out of the Gold Rush era. Um, I can't remember if you covered this one or if i did. Because I think we've both done episodes about oyster history. Mm-hmm. The origin of the Hangtown Fry. Do do you know that? Okay, so this is another one where murky origins, food story, so of course lots of people debate about if this is true, if it's a legend or not, but the story that I heard was that, um, I believe up in Placerville, during the era when there was a lot of hangings, you know, if someone was caught, you know, stealing from someone, they'd string them up, it was like frontier justice, that a guy was given the option to have a last meal, and he thought he could buy himself some extra time by ordering like, for his last meal, something with the most complicated and hard-to-get ingredients as possible. So he ordered an omelet made with oysters in it. So he figured whoever was going to make it would have to go all the way to the bay, get oysters, and come all the way back. And that's the origin of, like, the Hangtown fry, which is, like, you know, that's what it is, it's the omelet with, with oysters in it. Yeah. So did they actually do that? Did that happen? I have no idea. But
2: I mean, one thing about these food stories, you know, I think a lot of times there's, like, both could be true you know Mm -hmm. I mean think about um, people are drawing inspiration from the same things at any given time so yeah I think people are playing with the same ingredients like it's possible that sometimes both of these things can be true
0: absolutely Um, so I'm such a big fan of Bay Curious that I actually celebrated my birthday this year at one of your events Uh, you guys had a roller disco party at the Church of Eight Wheels in San Francisco inspired by uh, the roller skating history at Golden Gate Park. Mm. And it was so much fun. I brought my wife and my friend Laura here who's recording this event and a couple other friends. Um, And I'm just wondering if you have any other kind of like dream events. Because like, you know, you do trivia nights, you do presentations. That's all kind of You know pretty straightforward for a show like this for um you know a show that's kind of or a a podcast all about bay area trivia but like the roller disco thing was a little bit creative do you have any other like dream yeah projects or spinoffs or anything like that we've
2: had a lot of fun with events in the last couple of years and i think that's only going to continue kqed in general is just like really trying to kind of bring the community back together around events Mm -hmm. um So it's really cool to be here, actually, uh, around your event. Um, But uh, we were actually just talking today about a couple future events, one of which, speaking of the Mai Tai, is going to be, uh, I forget what the name we decided on, but it's uh, Curious Cocktails. And it's actually going to be hearing the story of a number of different cocktails that have not necessarily the origin of the Bay Area, but some sort of like root or history or some piece of something about them you know tied to the bay area and then we'll have a bartender on hand and everyone will get to learn to make the drink and then oh. drink it so it's kind of going to be like half bartending class half history lesson <laughs> hopefully a lot of fun um, i've been wanting to do something like that for years and finally like the schedule's opened up so this fall we're going to be putting that together uh, we also just this last weekend did uh, a second run of our walking tour of the Japanese Tea Garden in Golden Gate Park, which is based off the story a story that you actually will find in the book about the fortune cookie and how uh, the fortune cookie as we know it in America um, actually has a lot to do with San Francisco. And, Another
0: really crazy story. Like, yeah. you think fortune cookies, Chinese restaurants. Right. And then why does it connect to Japan? I mean, read the book and find out. But... <laughs> It is really, we don't want to give away all your stories, right? I know. But it is like, it's another crazy one where I had no idea of the Japanese origins of, you know, fortune cookies. Yeah. So so we
2: gave an immersive tour of this space that included, um, you know, live music, uh, sort of a theatrical presentation from an actress about, uh, who was kind of our tour guide through the garden. So, yeah, we're trying to like play more with like theatrical elements and, um, yeah teach people different things in in other formats. So hopefully we'll keep playing with that because I find it really energizing to just mix up the formats, which is partly why we have a book. Absolutely, and there's so many different fun ways
0: to kind of impart history upon people. Um, A couple years ago, one of my favorite local Oakland historians is a woman named Betty Marvin. Some people in this room are probably familiar with Betty. Shout out to Betty Marvin. She's like a walking encyclopedia of Oakland history. She does all kinds of presentations, but one of them involves basically dressing up like uh, Julia Morgan and giving a presentation sort of in the voice, you know, from Julia's perspective. There's another woman who does, um, sort of channels the spirit of Isadora Duncan, who's another uh, Oakland-born person who went on to great fame in the early 1900s as the kind of mother of modern dance. So I love these ways of kind of embodying history and sharing with people, you know, using all these different creative kind of formats.
2: I feel like a party where all these people are there (laughs) and you can like come and like meet Historical. So sort of like figures. a Bill and Ted's
0: adventure type yeah.
2: situation. Although <laughs> well, for some reason my brain went like right to clue and I was like, oh wait, no, we don't want anyone to die. So oh let's not do that.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. But yeah, I feel like we that's okay. We should talk more about that. Yeah. I feel like there's a couple of <laughs> people we get on board. I feel like Peter Harlot would probably be into the idea and yeah, I think yeah. I think we got something going yeah. there. Um more videos
2: by any chance? You
0: can do the Bay Curious T V show at any point?
2: Maybe. Uh maybe i don't know what else i can say about that uh yeah an idea has been kicking around for a long time to do we actually have a, a number of bay curious videos from from years ago that we used to have a video producer we worked closely mm-hmm. with and we would maybe i don't know four or five times a year put a video out um i would love to make it like a more recurring series yeah. maybe like get somebody else to host that video series who's i don't know like good on tiktok that's not me but um <laughs> yeah somebody else maybe to host it but uh yeah, it's, it's something I would love to see us do. It's just kind of a matter of, you know, resources.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So you've been doing, oh, you know what, speaking of trivia, before we go any farther, we do have a special trivia portion of the evening that we're going to present to you right now. Um, and there's a prize. So I brought a copy of the Long Lost Oakland map. Which is a map I did a couple years ago. Of I have one things in my that house. No longer exists. Yes, thank you. It's Beautiful, beautiful map. And this map will go to whoever can answer one of Olivia's trivia questions. Olivia. Right. Also, yeah. So uh, if you, if you don't get it, talk to me, and I'll we'll 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 arrange something. But this one's going to someone for free tonight. Wow. And so. Um,
1: so yeah, shiny. so whoever
0: raises their hand, we'll try to I'll keep you ask the question and I'll look out whoever hand goes up first, okay. we'll give you a chance to answer first and if the first person doesn't get it, we'll keep going down the line with other questions until we get to a winner.
2: And I should say Liam has instructed me to go in descending order with most difficult first. We're starting with the
0: hardest question so. because we don't want 15 hands going up at once. here. Uh, we want a real history nerd to get.
2: Blame it, him if you don't like these first couple of questions.
0: Okay. What do you got?
2: Okay. The question is, UC Berkeley is home to the largest stand of blue gum eucalyptus in the world. The trees were planted 140 years ago. Why were they planted? I
0: believe they were planted for lumber. Just in case you couldn't hear that, the person said, I believe they were planted for lumber. Nope. That is not the correct answer. Okay, so we're going to give the answer to this one.
3: I was going to say the same Uh, thing as Bobby.
0: Okay, so we're going to do the answer to this one, then we're going to move on to the next question. Okay, so... So
2: that specific stand was actually planted as a windbreak to keep... (laughs) Windbreak. Because uh, the, the edge of the stand is right next to the track, and the track was once made of cinder... And so Um, the cinder would blow and get in athletes' eyes. So because it was so windy, they planted the trees to act as a windbreak. You know how eucalyptus goes. It got out of control. And so now it's it's everywhere. Now it's everywhere. All right. Let's see. All right. Round two. Okay. Round two.
0: That was a tough one. That was a tough one.
2: This Berkeley Center for Black Culture, Politics, and Art has been cited as a formative force in the early life of Vice President Kamala Harris. It operated from 1971 to
3: 1977. And
2: you've done the
1: episode on
0: it. I can tell it's on the tip of bill's tongue. All right, let's give him this answer. We'll do one more trivia question after this.
2: Okay, it's the rainbow sign. Is the, the rainbow name.
0: sign the rainbow yes. sign? Yes. Yes. There's some great articles about it. There's you did an episode about it. There's some really cool uh, resource online. We can see photos of like James Baldwin and people. There really really cool story.
2: Okay. All right. I'm um, trying to think of which is the third. Should I do a kind of easier one now so we can try to give your thing away?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Okay. Um. All right. Songbird by Fleetwood Mac on their Rumours album was recorded in what Berkeley performance venue? Oh,
0: okay. Oh. I was gonna say Fantasy Records. These are good questions. I, lo- no, I love questions because we're all learning. We're all learning together. I don't know the answer to this I, one either.
2: I, I actually agree. I think failing at trivia is really fun because you learn, you yeah, learn stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Zellerbach Auditorium. Zellerbach.
0: Oh. Okay. Yeah.
2: Now you're going to hear that song with I all new years. I love that collective. Oh. <laughs> See, we're,
0: this is, we're learning together. This is wonderful. Yes.
2: Okay. I can go one step easier if we okay. want to sure. try one more. Okay. These are,
0: these are great questions, though. I love it.
2: Okay. Which California architect designed the legendary Berkeley City Club, including its gorgeous okay. indoor pool? Oh
0: boy, this is going to be tough, because like t- 10 hands shot up simultaneously. All right, I'm, I've got to go with you, because you got both hands up, and I think you were like right at the beginning, like, so go, go. Yes, okay, all right, all right. Thank you really I've got a couple at home that I can The grizzly
3: bear... The right scale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were. They were, it quite, really is a, they were quite big.
2: Yeah. I, I just want to shout it out for for the podcast audience. It really is a beautiful map. I don't know if you're still selling them, but it's like shiny. Like the printing on it is just oh, exquisite.
0: They were selling them at the. Um, Oakland Museum gift shop for a while. They might have ran out, so I'll have to check in and see mm-hmm. if those are back out again. Um, I came up with the, um, the concept, and then my roommate at the time, T.L. Simons, was actually the artist, so it was a collaboration. And there's a whole uh, podcast series that I did about the map, so it's the stories behind the different locations. Yeah, yeah. So um, we'll wrap things up in a couple minutes here, so you've got time to sign all these wonderful books that people got here tonight. But... Um, I guess one one thing I'm wondering is you've been doing the show for like you said, over three hundred episodes now, eight, seven, eight years. Has it like changed much since you started or like in what ways has it kind of mutated or evolved? Do you feel like it's still kind of the same project that you set out to do all these years later?
2: Yeah, I feel like we have just like I think anything you maybe do for you know, almost a decade of your life, uh, we've grown, I think we've matured, I think we've um, we've gotten more complicated, Uh, like the stories, when I hear back to like early stories on the show, they were a lot simpler, we didn't go as deep, Um, I think we were, I think because we come out of like a radio news background, uh, the idea of having people listen for even like eight minutes was very stressful because... In radio news, usually it's like, we need a minute on this, we need no. two minutes on this. Like, you're telling things in a really short format. So, I think initially we were kind of nervous, like, ooh, this podcast is like eight minutes long, it's long form. That's <laughs> uh, funny now. Um, and now our podcast oftentimes will hit like 20 minutes. Um, I know you're no stranger to like an hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah <definitely. laughs> um, so, we've gotten, I think, more comfortable with like being able to sustain interest, getting into like more complex narratives. I think one thing that we're also, and I kind of talked about this a little bit at mm-hmm. the beginning, but um, trying to do, and I th- you, know, I think this is happening in journalism in general right now, but trying to like really question the narratives that are kind of the prevailing like mainstream yeah, narratives right. that, that we might, you know have heard for many, many years. Um, you know, I think we do tend to, when we look at history, because we've often been told to like find primary source documents and like that is what is to be trusted above all. Well, the one problem with that is like a certain group of people tended to be writing those primary source documents and uh, it discounts the voices of other people Mm. who were experiencing something at the same time. So in a way, kind of like unlearning some of Mm. the sort of quote-unquote best practices that at one point we kind of held to be like this is journalistically like the the values we need to have Um, and being more comfortable with trusting oral histories Mm -hmm. um, alongside what you might see as like a primary source document Um, yeah to just try to like present the most complete picture that we can and really try to get all the perspectives at anyone Moment, Because I think, yeah, when we when we really rely on just primary sources, it's like really kind of perpetuating white supremacy in journalism and in history. And we're trying not to do that. Absolutely.
0: So important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the spirit of your show, which takes questions from the audience every week. Can we, can we ask one or two questions to the audience? Or can we ask the audience if they've got a question or two for you now yeah, before we please. go to the signing portion? OK, uh, can you talk? Can you ask your question in the microphone so we can include it in the recording? Sure. Just don't pull
3: too far. I'm Reenie from Oakland. Hi, Reenie. Hi. I am your biggest fan.
0: Oh. <laughs> it's so nice to meet
3: you. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to tell you that your piece on TEPCO Beach was extremely moving to me because I grew up in that area. And could not figure out. I mean, there were people all different races there because we were all there for the shipbuilding plant. But I couldn't figure out why there were so many Italians. Mm. And it was because of the TEPCO factory. And since that time, I go out to TEPCO Beach with my dog frequently and bring buckets of pottery home and have surrounded my garden with this pottery. And we've started a TEPCO craze. Where me and my friends are buying this dinerware, and uh, repurposing them and, and loving it, and I have a lot of of other. I, I'm a native. My father was a native. I have a lot of really interesting dirt for you.
2: Okay. okay. Let's talk after. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that Tepco that you mentioned. That I mean, one thing that was. Tragic. Can you just
0: explain what Tepco Beach was, real oh, quick? Oh yeah. Anyone at home? Uh,
2: sorry. Yeah. So Tepco Beach is it's El Cerrito, right? Correct. Um, it's basically the a, a shore that if you go to today, there's lots of broken pottery shards because me, me, I'm trying to we remember. Used to dump shit on <laughs> basically, well, yeah. we
0: used to. the factory would toss their rejects. Basically, the the w- they made all the plates and dishware for local restaurants, doggy diner, yeah. etc. And the, so,
3: yeah, yeah all, all of the navy air force. It doesn't usually break; it just chips. It's, it's durable. Normal. Yeah. I yeah. Think, um,
0: it's a little bit more benign than um, not too far from Tupco Beach, there's Battery Point, which got yeah. that name because that's where the battery factory would dump their batteries, which is a lot but more harmful spangers, for the environment than porcelain. Yeah.
3: Spangers or, right. um, the Casa Orinda. Yeah.
0: Well, um, let's right. take one or two more questions. Okay, right here up front, can you uh, speak into the microphone, please? Uh,
3: I'm Tommy Ollendorf. I live on the city line, literal city line of Oakland and Berkeley, the... PG&E thinks I live in Oakland, and the post office thinks (laughs) I live in Berkeley. And um, So anyway, I I wonder if you could say anything about the Edwin Hawkins singers.
2: Oh, Oh. I don't know anything, no. The song that
3: that made them famous was Oh, Happy Day. It seems like an awful lot of people know that song, and their original name was the Northern California something or other, and they were from here.
2: Okay. I didn't know that. I'll check into that later. Thank you.
0: Um,
3: I, I love can,
2: coming to these things. So yeah, yeah. Like I said, I just like add notes. I'll look into too. that. <laughs> yeah. um, a
0: great person to talk to about that would be Betty Reed Soskin, mm-hmm. who many people know is the oldest uh, park ranger now retired uh, in the United States. But way back in the '50s, uh, she, her, and her husband Mel opened one of the first black record stores on the entire West Coast, and they um, stocked soul records. Back then, they were called race records. Um, R and B gospel, etc. And she knew Edwin Hawkins, and her that store actually had a big role in popularizing that music because people could, you know, buy the records and put it in the jukeboxes, etc. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Edwin Hawkins, huge hit. I mean, it was like a, one of the biggest gospel hits of all time, mm-hmm. I believe. And uh, yeah, with roots right here in the Bay Area. If you go to a lot of, um, if you look at a lot of the history of uh, Black Bay Area music, like the Pointer Sisters, for example, a lot of that goes back to singing in uh choirs and churches and things like that this is
2: why i listen to your podcast
0: (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i haven't done um edward hawkins episode yet but that's a that's a great reminder to do it and we've got a question uh right up front looks like from the youngest member of the audience tonight do you want to introduce yourself and tell us what you're wondering about
1: i'm charlie and i want to know why there's a troll under the bay bridge
2: Oh yes, yes. We can talk about yes, the Bay Bridge. We can troll. definitely talk about the Bay Bridge. Troll. <laughs> well, actually, you might be the best because you get to see it on your boat tours, right? I know this.
0: I know this story pretty well. <laughs> I, yeah. I feel like
2: I feel like you might have me on this one.
0: All right. So <laughs> long story short, when the Bay Bridge, when a section of the Bay Bridge collapsed uh, during the 1989 earthquake probably quite a few years before you were born, Charlie. Just a guess. <laughs> the, um, when they were repairing it, there was an iron worker who secretly welded a troll on the outside part of the Bay Bridge. So you wouldn't see it if you were driving. You'd have to look at it from a boat or you know, something like that. And so he did it secretly because trolls were in, like I think it's like Norse mythology. They traditionally lived on bridges and things like that. And so no one knew about the troll at first because it was hidden. But then Caltrans, which is in charge of the bridge, found out about it, and they were not happy about that. <laughs> there was an article in the San Francisco Chronicle about the troll, and they were quoted saying, like, if we knew about this troll, we would never have allowed it, where the iron worker knew what he was doing, and he welded the troll on so good that it would have been very, very challenging to remove the troll. So it was there until the old Bay Bridge was disassembled when they were building the new Bay Bridge, the big white one that you probably cross all the time when you're going from San Francisco to Oakland. And so...
2: The one I sat on for like an hour today. Yeah.
0: Oh no. So they, yeah. So they took down uh, the Bay Bridge, and the troll disappeared for a little while. And uh, there is a new troll on the new Bay Bridge that you can see. But I was wondering what happened to that old troll. And because for a little while he popped up in the Oakland Museum and then the troll disappeared again. And I was like, what happened to the troll? He's
2: at Caltrans.
0: He's in the Caltrans <laughs> office right now, just a couple blocks from here. If you walk into the Caltrans headquarters right on the um, right on the corner of Webster and Grand, walk into their lobby and Caltrans changed their tune. Now they love the troll. He's like <laughs> the unofficial mascot of the Caltrans building. So was <laughs> it? I think it was just like a unsanctioned art uh, installation. Right. Yeah
2: so, and yeah. I I will say you can see the new troll from the walking path. So if you want to go give it a visit, you can yeah. you can see it without having to be on a boat. Yeah. Or you could take one of your boat tours.
0: You can, it's hard to see honestly from the water because <laughs> it's, it's kind far. of like hidden sort of but um if you wanna see a great picture of it, uh, Google Bay Curious, Bay Bridge Troll, I think it was Christopher Beale who did that story and he did a great job with it so it's you can you can do a google image search with it
2: Um, i do feel like you skipped one part about the the, the story though expand they put the troll there to like ward off future earthquake damage to the bridge so like and now i kind of feel like it's the troll is our good luck charm keeping that bridge safe he was a
0: good troll not an evil troll good troll. troll. yeah not like um the trolls on twitter Right. All right, well, I want to make sure that you've got time to sign everyone's book, Olivia. So, um, thank you so much for joining uh, us here at the Cameron Stanford House for this episode of East Bay yesterday. And thanks to all of you for coming out tonight. Really, really appreciate this incredible audience. Can we give Olivia a round of applause oh. for the show? <laughs> thank you to Laura Northrup, my friend who recorded this episode. And uh, all right, let's get going with the book signing.
2: Thanks, everybody.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. If you enjoyed the episode, please spread the word to your friends and family about East Bay Yesterday. You can find links to all my social media accounts and my newsletter at surprise, surprise, com you know it. Uh, And uh, if you really like the show, please hit the donate link while you're there. It helps so much. I I seriously wouldn't be able to do this show without the donation. So um, thank you to everyone already supporting the Patreon. If you can afford to kick down, you know, three bucks, five bucks a month, whatever, every little bit is appreciated. Uh, Thank you for even considering it. Uh, Music for this episode came from my friend, Justin Lee. And uh, that's about it. Thanks again for listening. I will be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.